Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. I am Marie-Laure Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and today my guest is BYU professor Greg Stallings. Professor Stallings teaches classes on Spanish literature and culture in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. His research focuses on 20th and 21st century Spanish peninsular literature and film. He was the co-director of BYU International Cinema during the years 2008-2011, and he has served as the ICIT acting co-director twice during recent years. He raised his three children with frequent attendance to BYU International Cinema uh, and um, films and events, and even getting them to design IC posters and flyers back in the day. So it's probably, he says, no coincidence that they now are all involved academically and professionally in filmmaking and the arts. The power of international cinema, right, Greg? Huh? Right. Yeah. And um, if you recognize the last name Stallings, it's because in this podcast, we every time we introduce our podcast, we say this last name. Johnny and Stephen, Greg and Gloria's sons, composed the music for the IC podcast and produced it. A few words about this music that we love so much. Yeah, my son Johnny is a PhD student in musical composition in San Diego, and so he found time to do this a few years ago. My other son, Stephen, is getting his master's in filmmaking in the arts at Columbia University back east. And he was, you know, effectively the producer, uh, stitching together many takes. We, we recorded this long distance, but that's me on the flute. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was a fun project, and I'm delighted you're still using our music. I think uh, we're planning on using it. Like, this is amazing for us to have this this beautiful music. So welcome, Greg. We're so happy to have you back in the IC booth. Um, a warning, maybe, this conversation may uncover some plots. Um, for We're talking about the film Volver from Almodovar. And so if you have not seen Volver yet, watch it, and then come back to the podcast. Fair enough? Sounds good, yeah. Great. So as an introduction, um, would you please let us know who Pedro Almodovar is? Yeah, Pedro Almodovar is so famous around the world, in Spain and Mexico and throughout Europe and in Asia. He's so famous that it's kind of like Madonna. <laughs> And we just say Amaldovar, right? Everybody knows it's mm. him. And you'll see in the credits of the film, it says Amaldovar instead of Heather Amaldovar because he's such a rock star director. But he was born in humble circumstances. His father uh, worked in a vineyard and uh, he was born in a tiny little town in 1949, south of Madrid, called Calzada de Calatrava. And uh, he was groomed to be a priest. And uh, when he was very small, eight years old, uh, he was sent to Cáceres, Extremadura, which is in the far uh, west of Spain, uh, to study with the priests. But he himself has said that his greatest education in his youth was the cinema. Uh, they did not have a cinema house where he was born, but back in the uh, west of Cáceres de Extremadura, they had a cinema house or several. And so he has said, cinema became my real education much more than the one I received from any priest, end of quote. And uh, so he fell in love with the cinema so much that he basically ran away. 
And in his uh, late teens or early 20s, thereabouts, he started visiting Madrid, and eventually he just stayed in Madrid and uh, started very humbly with, you know, very small projects, kind of amateurish uh, films. And then by the 80s, he started uh, creating films and getting a name for himself, and he became the great Amadovar. So they're basically kind of two steps in his filmic career. The first step is kind of the bad boy of cinema, Francisco Franco, the uh, dreaded dictator of Spain after 40 years of fascism, of enforced with, again, basically family values and religious uh, practices, passed away in 1975. And so I went to Madrid and he was caught up in this kind of cultural revolution, which we call, and they called back then and called to the present day, La Movida Madrileña, kind of like the movement of Madrid. So it was a combination of like outrageous cultural practices, punk rock music, avant-garde cinema, uh, experimental painting. And so it was there that he met a young aspiring actress named Carmen Maura, and he put her in his early films. Um, and uh, she became a major star along with him. And Carmen Maura, in fact, plays the grandmother, the ghostly grandmother in this film, Irene. And uh, so that's the first half of his career, which to me culminates in 1988 with his comic masterpiece, Mujeres. Uh, Aborde de un ataque de nervios in Spanish, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which uh, was nominated for an Academy Award, which uh, that film and several others that he made in the late 80s started a young Antonio Banderas. He became a superstar with Amadovar. And so that's the first half. The second half oftentimes stars uh, Penelope Cruz, and we see one of those films for the schedule this week, Bover. But she's been in several of his films, and they're kind of more mature, they're kind of more, you know, thoughtful, reflective. They deal with the ghosts of the past, although he never um, mentions Franco in any of his films until very recently. His last feature film, Parallel Mothers, which also stars the great Penelope Cruz, uh, in fact, uh, overtly message, uh, overtly uh, references Francoism, the Spanish Civil War, the disappeared what we call uh, El Pacto de Olvido, the Pact of Oblivion, which in 1977, in this new Spanish constitution, after the death of Franco, they basically said, we will not dig up the ghosts from the past. We need to let the ghosts die or dissipate and move on. So no justice against the Franco regime. But um, the ghosts of the past kind of reemerge. And to me, there's a ghostly kind of presence in this film and other important Spanish films. Pan's Labyrinth, The Spirit of the Beehive, mm -hmm. that kind of are evoking these ghosts, Spanish trauma, right? The dictatorship without overtly mentioning the dictator. So in interviews, oftentimes people have asked, Amadovar, do your films deal with the past of Spain without actually spelling it out? And he oftentimes says that, no, he's not interested in that, but I think he is interested and it's there if we think about the traumatic situations of the main characters, et cetera. So that's him in a nutshell. And uh, he had a new film just last week in the Toronto Film Festival, uh, which I was able to see. And uh, he's still a very living, active, dynamic director. Excellent. You mentioned Ghost and one quote from... Um... Uh, um, Roger Ebert um, that was written when it came out in 2006 six, um, is that 
as a young man uh, and as, as a young gay man, uh, we can we can imagine that in Franco Spain, Almodovar did not find his space. But that he, he even though he did not feel at home and felt displaced, that uh, now he has the nostalgia for the women who accepted him, and um, as as if he had been a ghost. That's that's the quote. So not only the ghost of the past in political sense and historical sense, but as well, very personal. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. He would have had a hard time growing up um, gay in uh, Calzada de Calatrava, that small town south of Madrid. And uh, definitely he would have kind of been terrified of people talking about him. And uh, under Franco, basically, it was against the law or even dangerous, right, to uh, be like Amaldova as a young man. The Franco regime, um, early on in the first months of the Spanish Civil War, for example, murdered the most important uh, Spanish poet since the Golden Age. Many say he's the most important Spanish writer since um, uh, Miguel de Cervantes, Don, de, Don Quixote, right? And uh, his name was Federico Garcia Lorca. And uh, uh, Lorca is often cited, in fact, in his films, in this film, the color green, the scenes of a funeral come right out of Lorca's final masterwork, La Casa de Bernarda Alba, the images of women separated from the men, finding themselves in a hot afternoon after or before a funeral. All these images are coming from Lorca. The, um, the tendency in Amadovar in his mature movies to kind of eliminate the men, he said himself, <laughs> right? Uh, that's Lorca. Lorca's final play has zero men, right? And so kind of poof, they're disappearing. And so especially in this film, Julieta, which we've shown several times here at IC, have this homage to Lorca. But to bring it back to Almodovar, he would have been terrified, knowing about Lorca and other prominent gay people, right, who were persecuted, even murdered by the Franco regime. And so, yeah, he was able to kind of find freedom in Madrid and express himself, obviously, vis-a-vis -vis the cinema. Excellent, yeah. Um, would you talk about the evolution of Volver and um, how uh, other films that he had made before influenced or just just kind of like is the natural continuity of, of his work? Yeah, that's really interesting. So supposedly he had the scenario for Volver for several years, but his associates and perhaps the producers of his movies, etc., would kind of shoot him down. And so it's really interesting to note that his first mature film, again, his early works, he's kind of the bad boy of Spanish cinema. They used to call him the Madonna, Madonna, like our famous singer in this country, referring to her, uh, the Madonna of cinema, right? But his first kind of uniquely different film uh, was in 1995, which we have shown actually here at IC many years ago. La Flor de Mi Secreto, The Flower of My Secret. And that film has to do with a frustrated writer named Leo, or Leocadia, uh, who uh, is a prominent writer of like what we call novela rosa, romance novels, kind of like Barbara Cartland in our language. And uh, she's sick to death of writing kind of florid, romantic, escapist, supermarket kind of novels. And so she's working on a project and the plot of the project is explicitly detailed in that earlier film. And the plot basically is a woman has her hand in the murder of her own husband. 
and puts them in a freezer and treats them like a piece of meat. <laughs> and so when Bovet came out many years later, we were all, all of us that follow Amadova were kind of almost shocked, right? Like, oh, he actually realized this plot, which in the earlier movie seemed absurd, right? Like, it seems like the worst idea ever for a movie, right? A woman murders her husband or has her hand in the at least extinction of the husband, and then he's stuck in a freezer. And yeah, it's so poetically, or poetically rather, realized that uh, I think everybody thinks that's the best idea ever for a film. It's probably his most celebrated film in recent years, Bullard. Yes, definitely. Very famous, very popular. So um, Almodovar is also very famous for his visual poetry. What are some of those visual leitmotives that um, our students, our viewers, our spectators should be aware of and notice? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And um, he is really noted for his mise-en-scene, right? His kind of almost staged um, details in his shots. And uh, we can start with the colors. So uh, even in his earliest films, uh, there's a certain kind of symbolism to his colors. Blue, which if we think of films like Il Postino, right? And so many films, right? Under the same moon, um, blue oftentimes is a positive color in cinema, right? It symbolizes water, rebirth, maternity, right? The unconscious mind. But blue and Amadora, since his earliest films, has a negative kind of symbolism. And that's probably because blue was the symbolic color of Spanish fascism. Uh, Spanish fascism was kind of invented by a young charismatic uh, conservative named Jose Antonio Primavera, who was always wearing dark blue colored shirts. And that caught on. And so other young fascists uh, started wearing that same color and it became like the norm and the popular kind of color, dark blue. And so Spanish fascism is called La Falange. And um, it had kind of its own unique kind of take on fascism, but the colored shirt thing obviously kind of makes one think of the brown shirts in Germany, the black shirts in Italy. Um, so this dark blue color uh, is negative for Amadova or light blue as well. And so keep your eyes open if you haven't seen the film or if you rewatch it for the color blue. The color blue, especially in his early films, is obviously symbolizing negative things like hypermasculinity, fanatical conservative values, fascism, evil men, bad boyfriends. The color red, on the other hand, seems to symbolize something very different. Repressed women's voices finally erupting, being heard. Uh, the political parties that were opposed to fascism historically, communism, anarchism. These things are never kind of overtly suggested, but it's kind of there, right? Mm -hmm. So constantly we see Penelope Cruz with a red blouse, right? Her evil husband, spoiler, is wearing <laughs> blue. <laughs> yeah. And so it's something to kind of keep in mind, these colors. But in this film as well, uh, and other uh, kind of more mature films, all of a sudden we see a lot of the color green. <laughs> and the color green, to many of us, suggests the great Spanish poet again, Federico Garcia Lorca, his most famous poem, which every Spaniard knows, every school child has this memorized. Verde que te quiero verde, verde viento, verde ramas. Green, I want you to turn into green. 
green trees, green wind. And the color green permeates this film as well and often has to do with kind of rebirth, death rebirth, kind of a flowering of one's lives. And so pay attention to green as well. Agustina, for example, she lives in this space which is entirely, almost entirely green. Green chairs, green tables. The restaurant where uh, the main character, Raimunda Penelope Cruz, will kind of have a rebirth is also green as well. Yeah. So these are the colors to pay attention to. And one more thing is the image of kind of like bars, like parallel lines, usually kind of vertical, but sometimes horizontal, meshed with flowers from the very first images of this film when they're cleaning their, um, their tombstones, right? These women are in a cemetery, Penelope Cruz included, cleaning tombstones of their uh, beloved, departed uh, loved ones. There's this juxtaposition of lines with flowers. And so pay attention to that as well. I think it's a Hitchcockian kind of image. When we see lines in Hitchcock, according to great film critics like Tom Cohen, it signifies the cinema. Cinema kind of film stock has this kind of image of lines, right? Horizontal lines cutting into vertical lines. But uh, with Amadoi, the flowers seem to suggest that like the flowering of cinema, right? Rebirth vis-a-vis going to the movies. And so this has to do with the plot as well. And that she kind of is reborn as she serves food to, the, to this film crew. And again, this is a leitmotif which is constant in this film. And at the very end of the film, there's a kind of in the credits, right? There are these kind of drawings or paintings of parallel lines which start moving. And then flowers emerge from the lines. I mean, mm-hmm. But this image goes throughout the entire work. So pay attention to that as well. And the clothing and blouses that she'll wear um, in the background and the apartments. Parallel bar lines with flowers. Beautiful. And actually that first scene uh, that's so striking, there is this um, right to left tracking shot. And it feels like we're taken into the past with these women washing the tombs and making them so clean and putting flowers and then it stops and it feels like this is a really good introduction to the film who is anchored in the past but as well in the present so that first scene is is beautiful now yeah and the music oh. here to mention is from uh, an operetta uh which is based on a play by lope de vega who's like the most famous writer from the 1600s in Spain, besides Cervantes. Uh, and the melody is called Las Espigadoras, the Gleaners. And that play from 400 years ago had to do with working working women, you know, humble women, working in fields, banding together, kind of helping each other out. And so that's a evocation of a literary past, right? So that's fascinating that you also see that kind of nostalgia for a past yes. since the very beginning of the film. Almodovar is often associated with postmodernism. What, what are some postmodern themes that you see here and how does it encompass so many, so many different aspects of, of life? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And um, postmodernism is often associated with kind of metafiction, self-referential works. And uh, many say that the whole thing began 400 years ago with Don Quixote de la Mancha, which is heavily metafictional. It's always talking about itself. It's a book about books, but... Uh, Amador also, since its earliest films, oftentimes has to do with uh, filmmaking. And so there are images of like mise en abeam, frame within a frame. It's not so heavy in this film. 
um, not so prominent, but it's there. The fact that it's a film crew, right? They're making a film around uh, the neighborhood uh, where Raimunda lives and she serves them food every day. It's kind of an image of a film within a film. But especially with postmodern style, we think, uh, and Almodovar especially, of this uh, tendency to create works which are kind of stitching together many, many works, many, many genres and styles in, in a kind of sea of intertextuality. So his films are like a brilliant mosaic of constant um, intertextual works. And he himself has said the following, uh, quote, you can say my films are melodramas, tragic comedies, comedies or whatever, because I used to put everything together and even change genre within the same sequence and very quickly. And so that's the amazing thing that is that we'll have like a, an evocation of Hollywood 1950s uh, melodrama directors from the 50s, like Douglas Sirk, Women Are Crying, and then within the same <laughs> sequence, 30 seconds later, it's Scribble Comedy, an evocation of films like Bringing Up Baby by Howard Hawks. And so, yeah, it's a brilliant kind of collage or pastiche or crazy quilt of all kinds of references. I already mentioned Lorca, but definitely Lorca was fascinated by ancient Greek tragedies. And mm -hmm. That image of Penelope Cruz with that knife full of blood makes one think of works like Antigone or Electra by Sophocles from thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. But speaking of tragedies, many have related the film to Hamlet and the idea of a ghost that wants mm -hmm. revenge, mm -hmm. right? Avenge me, Hamlet's father says. Don Quixote de la Mancha influences this work without a doubt. Many things we could say, the idea of madness, but also the constant leitmotif of windmills. There are these postmodern windmills, like the ones we see here in American Fork, constantly kind of filmed with off-kilter shots. And um, that's definitely a homage to Don Quixote de la Mancha. Alfred Hitchcock, we talked about film noir, mm -hmm. especially the film from the mid-40s, Mildred Pierce, uh, which starred Joan Crawford as a woman who has bad boyfriends and terrible husbands and so she starts her own restaurant and that's exactly mm. what happens in this film yeah and with the smoky saxophone that we hear mm. constantly the music has a lot of postmodern qualities as well the music is composed by the great film composer from spain alberto iglesia mm. who started with amador precisely in the mid-90s but precisely with the film that references this film the la flor de mi secreto and so his music is a brilliant collage as well of like evocations of Paco de Lucia, the great Spanish guitarist, the great Spanish composer from the 20th century, Manuel de Faija, but also smoky saxophones from film noir and lots of references, musical reference, references to Bernard Herrmann, the mm -hmm. great composer of Hitchcock, movies like Psycho, North mm -hmm. Northwest, Vertigo. Uh, yeah, and so there are more references in this film as far as like intertextual references to different genres. Couple more to mention that are really important: Italian neorealism directors like Vittoria De Sica, mm -hmm. Lucino Visconti. At the very end, they're watching this amazing beam kind of shot of a black and white TV uh, presentation, and it's one of those films from Italian neorealism. And he himself has said it's a major influence on this specific film. But also, again, meshed with things that are completely different: screwball comedy and the film *The Spirit of the Beehive*, which also has to do with ghosts. So there are many, many intertextual references in the mm -hmm. collage, which we kind of talk about always in terms of postmodern style. Very beautiful. So I hope um, our students will be able to see a glimpse of, of that uh, amazing work that Almodovar has done in Volver. Um, one, one thing that I would like to add is that um, this, is, this is a film about women and women's trouble. There is a scene where 
um, Penelope Cruz, so Remunda, opens the door to a neighbor and he notices blood on her neck. And she explains this by, yeah, women's trouble. <laughs> There's a lot of women's trouble, but as well, I, I uh, really enjoyed how these women come together to just find solutions to things that seem absolutely impossible to fix and um, the bond between them. Um, yes, they're in trouble throughout the film, but they are very resourceful. And um, yes, yeah, so I hope this film is something that I know our Spanish students will come and see for sure. Like the Spanish department is an awesome um, support to international cinema. But students as well from every corner of this campus, this is a beautiful film playing this week. Oh, thank you. Thank you for showing Spanish cinema and Hispanic cinema and Spanish language cinema in general. I guess this semester we have a Catalan film as well. We so do, yes. My students that yes. promote that as well. So thank you for giving us representation and for honoring Spanish cinema. We love Spanish cinema. Thank you so much, Greg, for joining us. And thank you as well to our listeners for being here with us today on From the Booth. We're grateful for the support of the BYU College of Humanities. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent official views of the university or its supportive institutions. Work on the sound is by Hayden Underwood. Original music by Johnny and Stephen Stallings with Craig on the flute. To all, thank you. Until next time, we hope to see you in 250 of the Kimball Tower. <laughs>